it's doing the opposite of what we would want it to do, which is encourage conversation and encourage parents to be involved and to have the difficult conversations and even to talk about it so much that it doesn't that it's no longer a difficult conversation. But instead, it just like pushed us all into secrecy and isolation and shame. Welcome back to Holy Heretics from the Sophia Society. We're your hosts, Gary Allen. And Melanie. And we're back with part two of our discussion about purity within the American church, as well as the purity culture of the 1990s and 2000s. And in part one, we looked at the idea of purity from a holistic perspective and what it meant in our religious heritage, especially for the ancient Israelites. And we saw how purity really became distorted as a way to exert power and control over others. We saw how, especially in Jesus' time, the Pharisees had created an elaborate system for determining who was pure and who wasn't pure. And it just so happened, of course, that they were the pure ones. And then we briefly discussed the idea of purity in the last 150 years or so within the United States. After that broad overview, we want to now narrow down into the purity culture that Gen X and millennials and now Gen Z are growing up under and being impacted by. And we're going to look at the specific messages from that movement, as well as hear some of your stories of how purity culture has impacted you. And then we're going to talk about where do we go from here? If we're going to deconstruct purity culture, then what do we replace it with? And let's just mention as we get started, that yes, we are going to be talking about sex, and we're going to be talking about topics that can be triggering for a lot of us. So we're not trying to be explicit, but we are just warning you that these are mature topics, and we want you to listen at your own discretion. All right. So where do we even begin? I feel like there's just so many places to go. I guess probably one of the easiest places to start is all those metaphors that you brought up in the last episode, Gary Allen, like the rose losing its petals analogy or the tape losing its stickiness or any of those analogies that they use to like tell young people that this is what happens to them if they lose their virginity. So many of the people who wrote into us on social media mentioned those metaphors and how damaging they were to them. One woman said, the flower petal analogy about how with each kiss and physical act, you, quote, lose a petal and eventually you'll have nothing to give to your spouse really messed with me. And like I said, there were so many different metaphors, but all of them basically had the same message. You are pure now, but if you do the wrong things, if you cross that line, you become impure and you can never regain your purity. That flower can never grow new petals or become uncrumpled if you watched Jane the Virgin, because that was the metaphor they had in that show was a, a flower that got crumpled, like squished in between the grandma's hands. Or the gum can never be unchewed by the thousands of boys and the water can never have all the spit removed from it. And regardless of what was trying to be taught or what they were trying to achieve from that, which I'm not even 100% sure, except for just to scare kids into not having sex, what it ultimately did was tie women's worth and identity to their status as virgins. I mean, think about it. Even the verbiage that we were taught, saving myself for marriage, is 
really different from saving sex for marriage. So it's all about saving myself. Like this this aspect of me isn't just an aspect of me. It is my entire self. And that verbiage even reinforced that message that we were only as good as our status as a virgin or not. One woman told us how much harm that did for her. She said, I had a very difficult adolescence and always followed all of the rules. But once I turned 21, I threw out a lot of those rules. My self-esteem plummeted when I was no longer a virgin because I hadn't waited for marriage. What was I worth? As someone close to me at the time said, Christian guys want virgins. I felt dirty and ashamed. I think that message teaches girls and young women to place their value or self-worth in their virginity. And that's not only wrong, it's downright creepy. I mean, why do guys want virgins? Let's think about that for a second. Why do they want virgins? Because they were told that's what they should want. And then as girls were taught, this is what you have to offer your husband, this and this alone. And that is a damaging message. Well, not only that, you know, guys are taught that they want virgins because no one can judge them sexually. Like, what if they're terrible? Uh, the girl won't know. Um. You know. So there's an underlying assumption in there that I'm not going to be judged as is not very good at sex because she doesn't know any better. And that's a weird, gross mm-hmm. kind of assumption as well. The other thing here, of course, is what it tells women and especially young girls who grew up in purity culture is that the highest goal in life for them is to get married, um, is to find a husband. And so unlike boys who go to school and are raised in the church to pursue a career and to be thinkers and doers, you know, women are subtly, if not unsubtly trained to believe that their highest ideal lies in finding and securing a husband through their virginity. And Mm. it's medieval when you think about it. You know, as a guy growing up, right at the beginning of all of this purity culture, I don't ever remember anyone objectifying my body, of referring to my body as a stumbling block or objectifying me and my virginity. Male virginity was not elevated to the point that female virginity was. However, we were told that we were weak that we couldn't resist sexual temptation, that we didn't have the power or the agency to own our own sexuality, that it was those women, those wily women hmm. who were going to lead us astray. And in, in not so uncertain terms, I think this leads to rape culture because guys are given a free pass. We are told that we can't control ourselves. And so purity culture is actually sexual victim culture for guys because we are allowed to just be as base as possible while girls were supposed to and were expected to be the guardians of everything sexual. Mm. Yeah, it's weird that it was taught that way because that's a recipe for disaster. It's saying, guys, you can't resist your urges, but girls, you better fend them off even though they're stronger than you. Uh, it, It makes no sense. Like, That's never going to work. A woman is never going to be able to fend off a man who thinks that he can't control himself. Another thing that I heard, it was on an episode of Dirty Rotten Church Kids podcast, and I'll link to that in the show notes. I thought it was really insightful that purity culture became a prosperity gospel. So if you do this meaning avoid ever crossing this arbitrary line that we've drawn, 
but that we haven't made very clear to you because we're speaking in weird terms about it. Then you get this, which is mind-blowing sex for your entire marriage. So basically, your actions earn something from God. God owes you if you do all the right things. And someone who responded on social media mentioned this. She said, I think one of the huge problems that the purity culture does is that it pushes the belief that if you do or don't do X, Y, and Z, you found the magic formula. Once you've done them and are content, then magically God will give you the perfect spouse, sex will be incredible, and you will live happily ever after. But nope, that's not how things work. I stayed, quote, pure, married a wonderful man who also waited for sex, and sex just fell into place and was instantly incredible. Just kidding. In fact, sex has been super hard for us. It was not incredible and amazing. We have had to work really hard at it. How frustrating to be told that if you wait, sex will be awesome. And then to find out we didn't have a clue and that sex can be frustrating, disappointing, and hard. So whether that prosperity gospel idea was intentional or not is, I mean, we, we can't really know. But regardless of the intent behind it, the effect was that it disillusioned an entire generation because, like she just said, if you know nothing about sex or your body and you're told to, like, run away from and be afraid of sex, and then all of a sudden, with the flip of a switch, now you're supposed to basically be a porn star, that's not going to work. <laughs> and yet, so many of us grew up, like, holding on to that promise that if we just did everything right, then someday we would have this amazing sex life, and it would be insane. and. And we would deserve it because God would owe it to us for our faithfulness. Yeah, and what's actually insane is that that someone actually came up with the math that, you know, two virgins who'd never had sex before, who'd never probably even kissed before marriage, who'd never gone through comprehensive sex education and therefore didn't even understand how their bodies worked, who probably grew up utterly terrified of the opposite sex in the first place because they were afraid of um, what might arise, <laughs> you know, sudden, suddenly these two asexual people somehow were supposed to miraculously leave the wedding ceremony, head off to the hotel, and just have mind-altering orgasmic sex right <laughs> away. I mean, it's, it's, it's ludicrous when you think of it, and that's exactly what I thought. That is exactly what I inherited. And when it didn't happen, you felt like, well, then now what is going on? Mm. What is wrong with me? What is wrong with God? What is wrong with all these things that have been you know, given to me? And I think a lot of us grew up with those assumptions, with those faulty assumptions. The Dirty Rotten Church Kids episode uh, put it really succinctly talking about all of this. They said, you can't teach someone for their entire impressionable young adult and adult life that sex is terrible. You need to stay away from it at all costs and expect them to have a good relationship with their body, a good relationship with their spouse, free from all the weird guilt and stuff. And that's true. You know, I, I, as I said, I remember, you know, personally really not really knowing how to think about sex. And I've been told my whole life that sex was dirty and it was bad and I was supposed to suppress all these feelings and desires. And then suddenly on the on the honeymoon night, 
you know, you've been given this free for all where you've not been educated on just basic human sexuality. And, you know, for the first years of marriage, I don't think I even knew what I was doing. And it was incredibly disappointing, not only for me, but also for my for my wife. Did did you experience something similar? Or am I just crazy? <laughs> uh, no, you're not crazy. And uh, are you sure we're ready to get into that? Because it's a long story. Uh, <laughs> Well, actually, I mean, in thinking over my story in preparation for this, I think that sexual prosperity gospel really caused me a ton of shame and pain as a married adult. But it kind of set in later. So, all right, background information. I was raised in a Christian household and I was the model Christian kid. I mean, I wasn't perfect, but I really wanted to do what was right. And I mean, it's not surprising because for those of you who are into it, I'm an Enneagram one. So, of course, I wanted to do what was right and be good and follow all the rules because that's what Enneagram ones do. So it's not surprising that I was like that. But then starting in middle school or maybe even a, a little bit before that, because I hit puberty at a pretty young age, I started to have this side of me that not only really wanted to fit in. I also really wanted the boys to like me and think I was the most beautiful one. And I wanted them to see me as sexy. And I definitely wanted to make out with them. Like I, I had that desire within me. So I had these two sides warring. One side was like, yes, I want to be pure and good. And the other side was like, but that sounds really fun. So church kind of became this like exercise in re-upping my devotion like it would be like okay yeah I can do this all right let's go and then by the end of the week that devotion was like totally waning and I was like what do I really want to do that that sounds pretty terrible so I get to high school and honestly I really started struggling because that's when I was able to start thinking more deeply about all of it and I started questioning like why would I want to wait until I was married to have sex when that might mean the sex would be awful like that one person said on social media, and even like you said, it was a struggle. And and then I also wondered, like, are we really supposed to wait until marriage to have sex when in the Bible times, people got married in their teens or early 20s, especially for girls, they were married off within six months of starting their menstrual cycle, which for me, I would have been 12. <laughs> That's a very different age than what most people are getting married at, uh, which is late 20s, early 30s for a lot of us. Or then there's also people who rush marriage because they've waited and now they're like, oh, I just want to have sex. And then they get married and realize, oh, that's all I wanted out of this relationship. So it just didn't make sense to me biologically. Like, why would God make us to go through these changes, to have these hormones, to have these desires and then say, you don't get to do anything to act on them until you're married. You can't masturbate. You can't look at a man and think he's attractive. Like, all of that is sin, and you must wait. I just, as a 15-year-old, was like, does that make sense? Is that what God said? So when I finally started dating a boy my junior year of high school, I was head over heels for him, and I had sex with him, and I had, I felt great about it. I was not pressured by him at all. It was what I wanted. It felt natural, and I never felt shame about it. I was just like, this is what I want. But because of what I had been taught, then I started saying, well, could Christianity even be true 
if this is so great and they have told me that it's so bad. So eventually, kind of end of high school, early college, I did walk away from Christianity. And I think that's important because it was this one single issue of my virginity that caused me to leave. Not like, how can God allow evil and suffering in this world or all the other theological questions that people have? It was literally this question of my virginity that made me say, I don't want to have anything to do with Christianity anymore. And I don't think all these purity culture evangelists had that in mind when they came up with it. So eventually I did come back to God, but I actually think that that was the point when those messages from purity culture really started taking hold and causing a lot of damage, even though I didn't recognize that at the time. I mean, because it was like, okay, well, I need to get out of this cycle that I'm in in relationships of dating and then eventually having sex and all that. I needed to reorient my mind toward romantic relationships. And so I spent like three years trying to do that and trying to like reorient my mind and my heart. And it was during that time that I read books like Passion and Purity by Elizabeth Elliot, or there was one by Joshua Harris called Not Even a Hint. I think it has a different title now. But the Elizabeth Elliot one told the story of her courtship and then marriage to the missionary Jim Elliot. And I don't remember it exactly, but there was a story in there where they were hanging out in a very public place, a park, and sitting on a park bench. And I don't remember if it was her or him, but one of them put their head on the other person's lap, like laid down and put their head on the lap and then like freaked out because it caused them to have feelings that they shouldn't have. And that was the closest they ever got to physical touch before their marriage. They didn't hold hands. They didn't hug. They didn't do anything. And so I remember thinking like, oh, well, that's the godly way to do things. So that's what I need to do now. But also everything that I've done up until now makes me dirty and rotten and broken. Then Harris's book, it, the title came from Ephesians 5, 3, where Paul says that we should have not even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. So, of course, the book is then dedicated to elaborating on how we don't have hints of sexual immorality or impurity. And it it, it was just a whole new set of rules to follow. It, and it was especially about women dressing modestly and not showing their bodies because that would cause men to stumble. Their stumbling was my fault. And what it really did, ultimately, was not only make me hate my body, but it made me terrified of even having the whisper of a hint of sexual immorality. I mean, I was terrified that I would mess up and not even know it just because like a boy might have seen the curve of my butt when I walked by because I walked, <laughs> you know, like you, you can't hide the fact that you have a butt because that's how humans are made. But I was terrified that my butt or other parts of my body would cause men to stumble. So all the all the autonomy was on me. And then the men, of course, like you said, were just helpless and couldn't help it. And they had they weren't responsible. And to be fair to the book, I think he was equally strict with guys and girls, like had equal numbers of rules for guys and girls. But he never mentioned modesty for men. Um, and what it made me do was say, I do not want to someday stand before God and have to account for making my brothers in Christ stumble 
because of something I wore or how I carried myself or whatever the thing was. So I obsessed with wearing baggy clothes and undergarments that weren't too emphasizing. And ultimately, I started judging other women for not being as holy as I was because they were obviously communicating the wrong message and I was much better, which goes back to this whole idea of purity that like I'm in and they're out. And what's interesting about all this modesty stuff is that many people echoed that in their responses on social media as well. One woman said, I think purity culture made me feel shame over my body looking good or even feeling desirable or even the shame for wanting to be attractive. It wasn't even that she wanted to be sexy or seen as a sexual object. She just wanted to be beautiful. And she felt shame for that. That's just heartbreaking to me. But okay, so getting back to I finally got married. And I honestly was worried that I would have this whole time where my husband and I had to deal with my past. But I had told him early on that I wasn't a virgin. And it never bothered him. He just kind of was like, oh, okay, why are you telling me that? And I was like, because it's a big deal. And he was like, it doesn't bother me. And it has literally never come up once since then. It is not something that bothers him. But what did cause us lots of problems, but mainly me, was the guilt and the paralyzing shame that I felt because of purity culture. So, for example, for years I was told that guys only want one thing from me. That's the only reason why they would talk to me or look at me or want to date me was just because they wanted sex, not because they were interested in my mind or my heart or anything else. And so it was my job to keep those dirty dogs from getting it. Uh, And someone else mentioned something similar. She said purity culture taught her that purity is her responsibility because, well, men are pigs, which she had a good point on this. She was like, I hate that because it brings both men and women to a lower, lower level of dignity. And it objectified women and made men no better than animals, which is a good point. But that wasn't something that I was able to think through deep enough at the time. So it was just like, okay, yeah, I got to keep those dirty dogs away from me. But now all of a sudden I'm married and he wants sex. So is he a dirty dog now? Is he a pig now? Like, am I am I not supposed to just tell him no because that's wrong and bad? So it made me feel like, quote, giving in to my husband made me a bad Christian. And yes, I was taught that once you get married, sex is beautiful and good and right. But I think what it shows is just how much those black and white fear-mongering messages can really screw with your head and make it hard to switch. I mean, if you spend years thinking, I must rebuff all advances because men are pigs, then how are you supposed to switch in an instant? And it makes it hard to enjoy sex no matter what context it's in. But that's... (laughs) So on the other hand, I also got this message from an older woman who was like, looked up to in my church as a very godly woman. She said that she felt it was her duty as a good Christian wife to never refuse her husband, no matter how badly she wanted to. So because of that, I began believing that I wasn't a good Christian wife if I ever refused sex because, like, even if I refused because I was having 
bad menstrual cramps or I was just exhausted. Like there are good reasons to say no to sex, but it taught me that my needs were secondary to my husband's. And by saying I do at the altar, I had given unconditional ongoing consent for the rest of my life, which I didn't realize I was doing, but that's what it taught me. So you can imagine then how guilty I felt if I ever say, said no, no matter how legitimate the reason. But yet, as I just mentioned, I also felt guilty for saying yes, because then that made me a bad Christian woman who didn't repel the dirty dogs. So it it's like it's just a crazy, mind blowing cycle and just like level of nonsense that's hard to undo. And honestly, I could go on and on about all these different conflicting messages that have like kept me paralyzed and have heaped shame after shame on me. And it basically made me so that I I was afraid of any kind of physical closeness, even like holding hands then became like, well, what does he want from me? And or should I be doing this or should we be doing this in public? I mean, it. I mean, and this is like I've been married for over nine years now and <laughs> I still struggle with this. And that doesn't even really get into the modesty topic because I struggle to accept my body. I feel like my body is this horrible thing. And like, how could it be a good thing when it's so sexual? And it's truly been a almost a war to try to parse through all the things I was taught and figure out what was legalism and what actually helped me to love God more or myself more or others more. And the truth is, the parsing that I have done has shown me that most of it, like 95% of it, was just complete legalism and shame inducing and has caused me just so much pain. Oh my gosh. I mean, I, I think your story, one, is universal in some ways um, to so many girls who grew up in this culture. And I say girls in particular because, as you just excruciatingly detailed, Purity culture targets women at a far more intense level than it than it does men. Mm. I mean, your entire identity, your self-worth, your value, not only as a human being, but also spiritually was tied up into all of this. And I, I can just say that, uh, I mean, I don't think very many boys growing up in this felt that same level of intensity mm. that you just expressed in very intimate details. So it, at some level, like we all need to ask forgiveness for creating that mm. culture and for putting that burden on you and for putting that burden on hundreds of thousands of girls who were formed with just an incredibly warped understanding of sexuality. You know, not only are you objectified, but uh, as we said earlier, your entire worth as a human being is is based on this one thing. Mm. It's not your mind. It's not your ideas. It's not your hopes and your dreams. It's your body. So even if you are a virgin, even if you made it out of this alive and un, you know, undefiled, <laughs> you've still been reduced to an object of sexual gratification. Mm. And we see how. You know, I think it, in culture at large, we just automatically see how porn or how Victoria's Secret or how, you know, whatever show objectifies women sexually. We can, we can see that pretty clearly. We've been unable to see 
how purity culture did the exact same thing. And it really has universal societal consequences. You know, it, I think it fosters a culture that automatically distrusts women because of their sexuality. And it paints them as temptresses who have all this power to destroy a man's life. And what it ultimately does is it creates young boys who are raised in sexually oppressive homes who then grow up to fear and loathe and even hate women on a, on a national scale. And I, I don't know if you've seen this documentary, Mel, but um, it's fascinating. It's on Netflix. It's, it's called The Ripper. Mm, no. Yeah, it's so good. It chronicled, I actually binged it uh, this weekend, and it, it chronicles this serial killer that killed 13 girls in England in the late 1970s and early 80s. And what was so chilling about it wasn't just the killer's action and his hatred toward women. It was actually the reaction from the police and then the general public toward the victims, which, which actually delayed the process in even catching this guy. Hmm. Basically, what happened is this guy went around the, the red light district and was attacking women late at night, women that were assumed to be prostitutes because they were out late at night. They had been drinking. They were alone. They were, quote, walking the streets. He would pounce on them and just brutalize them. Mm. And so since most of his victims were assumed to be prostitutes, the most impure people among us, there was just this general apathy and, and a real dehumanization of the victims by the police and by the media, which led to a real long delay in even capturing the guy. I mean, Nobody was even concerned. Like, you know what? He's just killing prostitutes. Big deal. Or, hmm. or well, he's just killing women that have been out and about. You know, they're a bunch of floozies walking, walking the streets at night. So in some ways, there was just general sense that they kind of deserved what was happening to them. And, and I think in, in very real ways, we see that over and over again in culture at large where women are, are deemed as evil and temptresses, and you know what? They kind of get what's coming to them, and it's disgusting. Hmm. Imagine if it had been, he had been killing, like, the 17-year-old governor's daughter who was so virginal and great. I mean, I think that guy would have been captured so quickly, and there wouldn't have been 13 well, victims. Exactly. Well, it's fascinating that you just said that, because that is what turned the case. He actually did kill oh. a, a 16 a 16-year-old girl who they proved was not a prostitute, who was this innocent person. Huh. And suddenly the entire conversation changed. And now people wanted to get involved. Now the public became involved and they caught him. So, yeah, it, it, it just shows how sinister it all is. Now he's a bad guy. Up until then, well, he might have been doing God's work because he was killing all the yeah. impure people. Oh, it's just, it's mind-blowing. All right, something that multiple people and both men and women mentioned, is that purity culture so stigmatized sex and sexual thoughts and sexual urges and desires that it discouraged conversations about it, both within the home and within the church. So one woman mentioned how no one ever talked to her about sex, masturbation, or even pornography. And the first time she ever talked to a single Christian about masturbation was at the age of 34. Wow. I mean, that's mind-blowing. Like, this is something that all of us feel the urge to do starting at, what, 12, 13, 14, somewhere around there. 
and no one ever talks to us about it. And guess what? It's not in the Bible. So what do we do with that? Another woman said it totally discouraged conversations between her and her parents because that would mean admitting to her parents that she wasn't a good Christian for having these completely natural feelings and body changes. So instead of going to them and asking them, what's going on? Why do I feel this way? Help me. She turned to other places or she kept it inside and never sought answers, which seems kind of like the opposite of what we would want when it comes to sex. Wouldn't we want parents to be the ones doing the sexual discipleship, not the Internet or TikTok or friends or, you know, some creepy guy in the church who is hoping to get close to young girls? You know, like it seems like we would want our kids coming to us. But what it did was it discouraged those conversations. And then one man said that he found reading all these other people's stories very enlightening because it was talked about so little for him. And many people brought up things he had never even considered because no one ever talked about it. So it's just mind blowing because it's doing the opposite of what we would want it to do, which is encourage conversation and encourage parents to be involved and to have the difficult conversations and even to talk about it so much that it doesn't that it's no longer a difficult conversation, but instead it just like pushed us all into secrecy and isolation and shame. Yeah, it was like total taboo subject. I, I don't ever remember my parents talking to me about sex. Um mm. not 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 to mention just, you know, what do I do with these physical urges and how do I foster them and form them in the appropriate way? And so, you know, Christian ethicist uh Stanley Hauerwas in his essay Sex in Public wrote Perhaps, yeah, it's a great title. He said, perhaps one of the crucial tests for any ethics of sex and sexual behavior is that we be able to explain it honestly and straightforward to our children. So, you know, if we can't even talk about sex in a way that makes sense to kids, then there's something, there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, now as a parent, I've got three kids, um, three adolescents. We're we're learning, my wife and I are learning, how do we approach the subject without making it weird or dirty or taboo, but just by making it natural and normal. And, you know, what are mommy and daddy doing in the bedroom with the door closed? And, <laughs> you know, really trying to figure all this out. And I think it starts with helping us all to be comfortable in our own skin, to, to really understand that, you know, secrecy and shame and fear only breeds more secrecy and shame and fear. And it also breeds isolation and guilt. You, you probably read this. Sarah Bessie put it well in her article, I Am Damaged Goods. She said, in the silence, our shame and the lies of the enemy grow. Mm. And there's so much to that simple little quote that silence and shame and lies and it's so, uh, there's so much bondage there. Now, one thing that honestly we haven't even touched because I don't even know how to talk about it is the entire message from purity culture and its impact on LGBTQI plus teens. Uh, I mean, it's this is a whole other entire can of worms regarding identity and worth. I, I can only imagine hearing that, you know, you're supposed to have all these sexual urges for a certain gender. 
and you're only supposed to have them uh, for specific people and yet you're feeling it for your own gender or for both guys and girls or maybe even more, quote, weird, you're not having sexual urges at all. So with all the shame that's already heaped on heteronormative sexual desire, there is no way that a kid experiencing something radically different is going to open up and share those those feelings with their parents. And there's there's absolutely no way that they're ever going to tell a pastor or a Bible study leader, especially because that same Bible study leader or pastor has been shouting at them for years that homosexuals are going to burn in hell for all eternity. Mm. So, you know, talk about silence and shame. Right. There is a whole other level of silence and shame and bondage that our same-sex attracted and LGBTQI plus uh, friends and family have been living under for generations because of purity culture. I actually had a few people write in to me about all this as well. One mentioned how their same-sex attraction was judged and mishandled and even kind of ignored so that they didn't have to deal with it. Another mentioned that they had stuffed their feelings down for so long and pretended to be something that they weren't, had put on a mask to fit that message of this is what your gender does and feels, that they didn't even know how to be themselves anymore. They didn't even know who they really were anymore because they had spent so long trying to fit that mold. And all of the people who wrote in about this mentioned how it made them doubt or even walk away from Christianity. I, I, how can something that's causing so many people to doubt Christianity be from God or be a good thing? How can that be what we want as the church, as Christians? Even if you spend all this time scouring scripture and asking God to show you and you decide that God says homosexuality is wrong, even then, do we really want to tell everyone who fits into that LGBTQI plus community that they're not welcome, that they are more broken than the rest of us? And one of the things that's near and dear to my heart is the fact that the I in the acronym stands for intersex. And that's someone who is born with ambiguous genitalia and or hormones or even chromosomes. That's someone who is born to not fit any of these norms. So do we really want to tell them that God made a mistake in how they were made? Do we really want to tell them that God made them that way and then he's now going to shame them and tell them that there's something wrong with them? I mean, that's not something that we can reconcile biblically at all, let alone with the character of God. I mean, what it really comes down to is purity culture says that it's our job to convict other people or it's our job to tell them that they're sinning. But it's not. It is never our job to convict someone. It is the Holy Spirit's job, and that is none of our business. If we really, truly love someone and if we really, truly love God, then we will trust God to do what God does best and leave that to him instead of trying to control and manipulate things and force people into these boxes of shame. You know, it reminds me, you're saying all of that, it reminds me of the story that we read in the Gospel of John um, 
where the religious leaders and Pharisees bring before Jesus this adulterous woman caught like in the act of sexual intercourse. And you have to read between the lines, but man, these dudes are dripping with self-righteousness. You know, they are they are almost thrilled with their own disapproval of this whore. Hmm. And and I think we see so much of that in this finger pointing that you're talking about is this elevation of our own righteousness at the expense of of others. And of course, what do they do? They ask Jesus, you know, hey, what do you say we should do with this woman? Because you know what Moses says. He says she should be stoned. So do we stone her or do we let her go? I mean, that's like purity culture writ yeah. large. You know, caught in the caught in the act, we kill you. But that's how that's how pervasive this this stuff was. And what I love is that before Jesus answers it, you know, you have to kind of step back and see what's happening here. There's a woman standing before us in this story. She's probably naked. She's utterly terrified. She thinks she's about to be killed. And oh, by the way, she's been brought forth by men. Now, we all know that it takes two to tango. So where is the dude? <laughs> Where's the guy she was with? Right there. They're not interested necessarily there. And this really exposes their self-righteousness. And I think it exposes their patriarchy. They are not interested or care about the man doing it. This is all about a woman being free with her body. Mm -hmm. So it's just obvious that these moral charlatans are far less concerned about sexual propriety than they are with power, than winning, than putting women in their place. And I, I just think that they're they're so threatened that they use purity culture as a weapon, really, to draw lines around who's in and who's out. And this woman is, you know, a, a scapegoat. Uh, she's an outsider. She is the other. And and this is all about controlling and scapegoating her. And so we know the story, of course. Jesus famously announces that the one without sin should cast the first stone. And what he does is he really changes the conversation from pointing at her to pointing to them, mm. to exposing their own self-righteousness. And and, and and what purity culture does is it's always pointing the finger at somebody else. It's somebody else's apparent sin and never our own. And so what Jesus does is he asks her accusers to think about their own sin first. You know, hey, so why don't you stop worrying about this woman and look at yourself? But we don't want to do that because we think impurity is always out there. It's always in somebody else. And that's what religious insiders do best, right? We make moral judgments about other people. We think it's our business to do that. And we're really good at it. The problem, of course, is that impurity exists, you know, in every human heart. It's not something that's out there. It's something that we all struggle with. So what Jesus does is he forces these moral purists to stop thinking about the sin that is out there or in the other and rather think about it themselves. They get shifty and one by one they all leave. And the only person left is Jesus uh, with this woman. And he asks her, you know, where are your accusers? And it's really a, a, an incredibly tender scene, I think, that displays, again, the compassion of Christ. Mm. She's expecting to be killed and she's spared. And Jesus really redirects her shame and blame and takes it onto himself. And I think we also have to be honest to say that, you know, he doesn't leave her unchecked. He doesn't leave her to just go back to her sexual promiscuity. He does tell her to go and sin no more. 
But more importantly for us, he does not condemn her. There is not one ounce of judgment or condemnation. Instead, he just offers her compassion. And so for us, we are supposed to go go do likewise. You know, stop focusing on the sin of others and instead look at ourselves. And then when that sin is exposed, to offer compassion as a as a direct response to that. I can only imagine what she was feeling when Jesus did that. I mean, what if someone had stood up for me or all the girls that I went to youth group with and said, no, we're not going to do this. We're not going to put shame on you. We're going to let you be free in God's love. I, I can only imagine how different that would have felt. And and I can only imagine what she was feeling as she's like putting up all these walls, you know, because she's being accused and she's ready to defend herself or just, you know, feeling all this anger build up within her or whatever. And instead, Jesus breaks down those walls and probably makes a lifelong follower out of her mm, because of exactly. that act of compassion. I mean, it's so beautiful. And I think this is a good time to be very clear about why purity culture doesn't work, what aspects of it make it not work, and why it needs to be dismantled and done away with, and why we need a new way of talking about sex and sexuality. And it's this. Rules and legalism never produce holiness. Fear and control never cause people to want to be more like God. They may outwardly conform, but inside, they are not like, oh, yes, I love this God. Let me know him more. The only thing that produces holiness or Christlikeness is a transformed heart. And what transforms our hearts? Compassion. Like you said, Gary Allen, we can only realize these good goals of holiness and true purity and chastity and even love of self and neighbor When we trust God, when we talk openly about sex and sexuality, and when we don't resort to manipulation and fear and force, I think we've made it pretty clear in these two episodes that those methods just did not work. If anything, they enslaved people and kept them in bondage, and it clearly pushed them away from Christianity, not deeper into the heart of God. And I I do want to say that for the few who did reach out in defense of purity culture and who had a good experience with it, I don't want to invalidate that experience at all. And I'm so glad that you escaped this harm. But that was the exception, not the rule for purity culture. And I want to be really clear about something else. For anyone who is listening who was harmed by purity culture and who is still trying to unravel and separate themselves from all the control and legalism like I am. It does not matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you were told. You are not broken. You are not impure. And you are not unworthy. Whatever the object lesson was that you were subjected to, it's not true. You are not sullied or broken or unlovable or unwanted. You're not a smashed flower. God loves you. And God sees you as white as snow, period, regardless of what you've done, sexually or otherwise. Our actions do not earn God's love. 
and they cannot change that Christ died for us so that we could be forgiven. Please believe that. I, and I say that to myself as much as to you, because I'm still trying to believe that, too. You know, it also points back to this whole notion of if, if there is any theology or any Christian practice that is putting you in bondage, that is dehumanizing you, that is taking away from your worth and your value as someone made in the very image of God, you have every right to resist that with every fiber of your mm. being. Um, you know, I think a lot of us grew up being told, don't trust your emotions, don't trust your gut, you can't trust yourself. No, 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 trust yourself. When you see something that is evil and gross, even if it is being spoused from the pulpit, run away, run from it. And I think also it, it just points to the fact that purity culture and a Christian sexual ethic have been so synonymous with one another that to attack one seems like you're attacking the other one. And for those who responded to your Facebook post in defense of purity culture, I, I just don't think they understood what was even being talked about because they can't see sexuality through any other lens besides purity culture. Mm. In their minds, to reject purity culture means to embrace sexual promiscuity, which is, of course, not at all what you were saying, and it's not at all what we're saying right now. We're not suggesting that you replace purity culture with hookup culture. You know, both in, in some ways are forms of bondage. Instead, how do we have a healthier, more Christ-like approach to our sexuality and especially toward purity as, as something of the heart? which really involves a lot more than simply what we do with our bodies. Mm. You know, I, I don't know if anybody has ever read or, or knows uh, Thomas Merton, this beautiful Trappist monk, but he, he's got a book, The Silent Life, where he talks about the whole notion of being pure of heart, not necessarily pure of body. And, and he says, the impure heart of fallen man is not merely a heart subject to carnal passion, Purity and impurity in this context means something more than chastity. The impure heart is a heart filled with fears, anxieties, conflicts, doubts, ambivalencies, hesitations, self-contradictions, hatreds, jealousies, compulsive needs, and passionate attachments. And then he goes on to say later in the book, the great enemy of purity of heart is then the basic hidden project to be better than everyone else, to exalt one's own will over the wills of others. So in an ironic way, purity culture actually created impure hearts because it taught those of us who remain virgins that we were actually better or more righteous in the eyes of God than everyone else who had potentially defiled themselves. Mm. Something I'd like to tack on to that is what some people said in defense of purity culture, and they said something to the effect of don't throw the baby out with the bathwater or just because some people had a bad experience doesn't mean purity culture itself was bad. OK, let's let's go there. <laughs> so going back to what you said, Gary Allen, in either episode one or two, we need to look at the fruit of purity culture. What is the fruit that it bore? And as we've seen in this episode, and I'm sure that you've seen through your experience, the fruit of purity culture is overwhelmingly rotten. For every response I had that somewhat defended purity culture, I had at least 10 
that said how much it harmed them. I don't know about you, but that is not a good return on investment, if you ask me. Right. (laughs) That's horrible. If you have 10 fruits come from a tree and nine of them are rotten and you get one good one, would you call that a good tree? No. If the vast majority of people who were taught purity culture had bad experiences, we should not discount that or say that the people who had good experiences are more important than the ones who didn't. Because by saying that the good experiences matter more than the bad ones, that's what we're saying, is that the bad experiences are less valuable or less uh, indicative of what purity culture did. And I, I think what people don't realize is that when they say we shouldn't question purity culture because of its good intentions, they're effectively saying that we shouldn't hold that system accountable or that that system and the people who promoted and profited from it are above accountability simply because they had good intentions. That's in essence saying that the harm that was done doesn't matter. And I think that does even more harm. One person who said we shouldn't have started the conversation about purity culture on social media because it was so public. Because, quote, we want to bring light and joy and not negativity. I would argue that starting the conversation and bringing the pain out into the open is spreading light and joy. It's allowing people to finally say what they've held in for so long, finally give voice to their pain and their experience. It reminds me of it's somewhere in Ephesians 5, I think, where it says, Everything that is exposed by the light becomes the light. So we have to bring things out of the darkness and into the light in order for it to become light. If it stays in the darkness, it can't become light. And honestly, doing that also allows the process of healing to begin. But that only happens when we own up to the harm that was caused. And we say, it's not okay what happened to you regardless of whether it was intended or not, and then learn from our mistakes and stop doing it. I mean, it goes back to what you said about the serial killer. He kept doing the same things over and over and over again until he was stopped. Why are we not stopping purity culture from doing the same harms over and over and over again because it has good intentions? That's not okay. And the the worst outcome of that is that we continue to push entire generations further and further away from God. Yeah, and it kind of highlights the big question then is if this didn't work and we shouldn't repeat it, then what's next? You know, what do we replace purity culture with? How do we begin to rebuild a a healthy Christian ethic when it comes to sexuality and our bodies in particular? Because sex is complicated. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's messy. It's powerful. It can even just be mundane. (laughs) Um, And I I really like what Jamie Golden said on the faith-adjacent purity culture episode of the Bible Binge podcast. She said the purity conversation could also have flourished in the direction of really nuanced and appropriate conversation about the work of Jesus in your life and the reality of being a soul with a body. So I think whatever is next, uh, whatever we replace this with, it's got to be nuanced because sex and gender and attraction and gosh, even conversations about masturbation 
are just complicated. There are no easy black and white binary answers to this. And everything needs to be rooted in an understanding that first and foremost, matter matters to God, that he gave us our bodies, that God became flesh himself, which should tell us how much God honors and has elevated the body in the first place. Mm-hmm. I think it's in weird ways in evangelicalism, we've come to care so much about the soul that we've devalued the body in, in every kind of way. And I think all of this has led many of us to just be uncomfortable in our, uh, in our own skin. We are, we are naked and we are ashamed. I mean, <laughs> think about it. Like we jump out of the shower and we quickly cover up. We don't want anyone to see, <laughs> you know, our, na- our naked. I can remember my little, my little girl at one point when she was little, she would get out of the tub and she would say, don't see my naked. Don't see my <laughs> naked. You know, and it was so sweet. But but there's something in, intrinsically sad about it. You know, we are ashamed of our bodies. We have sex in the dark. We are suspicious of our physical selves and our desires. And we sort of spiritually divided the body from the soul. And I think all of it's unhealthy. So maybe we simply start with rebuilding our understanding of sexuality through a new reverence for our own bodies. Um our author Barbara Brown Taylor in her book, An Altar in the World, writes, one of the truer things about bodies is that it is just about impossible to increase the reverence I show mine without also increasing the reverence I show yours. And sadly, what purity culture taught us was actually to distrust our bodies, even to hate our bodies, which I think formed us to then distrust and hate the bodies of others which leads to all kinds of toxicity. So I think we need to rebuild a high view of the body to be comfortable in the skin that God gave us, to honor it, to value it. And then, of course, that's going to lead to doing the same thing for, for others. And, you know, just, just for everyone who's listening who might still be confused, I think pursuing a Christian sexual ethic is an incredibly beautiful goal. It's also difficult, and I think it is a a real part of the spiritual journey. We're not discounting that. We are called to be Christ-like, to convert our desires and our dreams and even our sexuality over to Christ. But but it's not as simple as maybe we've made it out to be. And to quote Hauerwas again, he said, Christianity is the practice of having one's body shaped, one's habits formed in such a way that the worship of God is unavoidable. So how do we then worship God even in our own bodies and with our own sexuality? And no matter what's next, if it's motivated by control or fear or manipulation or even the devaluing of the body, it is not from God. And it's just not going to work. It'll just be another purity culture wrapped in some other new package, some new version of fundamentalism. So I think the onus is on all of us to really enter the conversation to say, how do we as a community of faith come together and really begin to talk about sexuality in our bodies in an honoring way, in a way that offers dignity and value to every human being? And on top of that, I think we need to rethink how we view virginity. Maybe we even need to remove that word from our vocabulary because oh wow in in having that word we idolized it we we made it into something that it's not why are we so worried if we or our kids lose it 
I mean, do we care too much about one's virginal status and not enough about teaching our kids to be compassionate and kind and generous and patient and just all around good, loving human beings? Maybe we need to not think that if someone has sex before they're married, that it's something that needs to be announced or told or, or confessed to our parents. Maybe it just doesn't need to matter nearly as much as we have thought it did. It's very possible that by emphasizing it so much, we've made it a much bigger deal than it should be. Maybe it made us way too obsessed with sex. We should spend that, that precious mental energy thinking about and discussing other things. I think one person who responded to me on social media put it beautifully. They said, I wish we would have been taught what to focus on instead of what not to focus on. By trying our hardest not to focus on sexual things, it turned out that was all we wanted to do. And then someone else said, purity is a good thing, but it is not the end all. I, I agree with that. God is the end all. Anything that becomes bigger than God or more important to pursue than God is an idol, and it will only disappoint. <laughs> okay, I, I mean, I think, <laughs> I think we have covered so much today and in the last episode. I'm sure there's a bazillion other things we could say, but we'll save that for the future when we interview other people who are putting forward new ideas of how to talk about sex and sexuality and virginity and how to talk about purity and chastity. But man, this was heavy. This was a lot. Yeah. I mean, and I think it was traumatizing to even talk about because it it brought back a lot of stories and feelings. And, you know, sex impacts all of us and especially those of us in the church. And we need to admit that as Christians, we have not necessarily talked about sexuality in very healthy ways. Mm. And you know, it it affects us all on a deep level, on a personal level, and we're learning as well. You know, I think that's one of the things that we have said from the very beginning at the Sophia Society. We are not the experts. We don't have all the answers. We are on the journey with you. And so if there's something that we didn't say or maybe that we said wrong, we we get it. I mean, to say one thing means you can't say everything. And so as you said, we want to continue this conversation. We would love to hear from you. We would love to learn from you mm. as we're all growing through through this entire process of becoming more Christ-like. And, and of course, part of that is figuring out our sexuality and our bodies. And And so we just admit that this is a difficult conversation. It was personal. It's real. Probably was triggering for a lot of us. And we want to be there with you as you continue to process through this. Definitely, we do. And we want to hear from you. So if you want to give us your reaction, tell us that we were wrong, tell us what we got right and what we didn't get right, we want to hear that. So feel free to shoot us an email at podcast at sophiasociety.org. That's podcast at S-O-P-H-I-A society.org. Or you can send us a message on social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook as at Holy Heretics and on Instagram as at Holy Heretics Podcast. Hopefully our next episode will be coming soon. It will focus on the second of the three Ps, which is patriarchy. So it promises to be just as fun and controversial as this one was. 
Uh, hopefully that one will follow shortly, but we are a nonprofit, so we rely on the generosity of listeners like you to be able to keep the lights on and to keep making content. If you like what we're doing and have been blessed by it or want other people to be blessed by it, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can find all the information about that by going to patreon.com slash holyheretic. This episode was written by Gary Allen Taylor and Melanie Mudge and produced by the Sophia Society. Music is by Faith in Foxholes and sound levels were mixed by Joshua Mudge. 